Visionary Voices is a podcast from the Wallace Center at Winrock International developed to highlight the Food Systems Leadership Network, a national community of practice that connects emerging and existing leaders for peer-to-peer learning and support, professional development, resource sharing, and more. This series features conversations with leaders in the national good food movement, exploring their personal backgrounds, leadership journey, and stories from the field. I bring the perspective of being an activist who for most of my life has been involved in the Black Liberation Movement, and then later found out that there was this food movement. So it's not like I just jumped into the food movement. The activism in the Black Liberation Movement informs my my activity within the food movement. So that brings kind of a unique perspective. This is Visionary Voices, Stories from the Good Food Movement, a podcast highlighting the voices of people dedicated to creating social change through food. I'm Megan Bucknam, and this audio series is comprised of interviews with some of the mentors of the Wallace Center's Food Systems Leadership Network. My name is Malik Yakini. I'm executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. The Detroit Black Community Food Security Network was founded in February of 2006. And we had some initial goals, one of which was to create uh, policy, to influence public policy. A second goal was to operate a two-acre farm in Detroit. A third goal was to promote food cooperatives. A fourth goal was to encourage young people to become involved in the food movement. And so we began to structure programs around those goals. And those goals still really guide the work that we're doing today. Can you describe a bit of your personal background that led to the development of this network and some of the influences behind the goals that you just mentioned um, that really address a range of food system related issues and programs? Sure, I'm a Detroiter and interestingly I've lived in the same house since 1960 so it's given me a very unique perspective on my neighborhood because I've been stationary for so long and I've watched the neighborhood evolve kind of around me. So in 1969, I was attending Post Junior High School and I had some teachers who were very concerned about the young people they were teaching and they were themselves politically conscious. And so they played for us Malcolm X speeches. They had us reading Black Panther Party newspapers. They exposed us to the music, the music that accompanied the kind of political revolution that was going on at the time. So we were listening to uh, Jimi Hendrix, John Coltrane, Farrell Saunders, and other artists who were really stretching the sonic bounds of Western music. And this kind of radicalization, if I can use that term, set me on the path that I've been on ever since. And so fast forward to 1989, I was the co-founder of a school called Insaroma Institute, uh, which was an African-centered school designed to make sure that African-American children learn in an environment that reflected their own culture and history. Served as director slash principal of that school until 2011. So again, fast forward from 1989 to 10 years later, 1999, we the school had moved to a location that had a fairly large yard around the school 
and in fact a, a large space behind the building and we decided that we were going to put a garden there. We had wanted to have a garden before at the school but we just didn't have the physical space to make it happen. And so in 1999 we actually had the space to make it happen and we created a fairly large school garden. I had been gardening individually in my backyard before that and even as a very small child I have memories of being in my grandfather's garden. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, moved to Detroit from Georgia in the 1920s and as many African Americans coming from the South he brought his agricultural heritage with him. So he always had a garden in his backyard and in, in retrospect I'm absolutely certain that that had an impact on the work I'm doing now. But in 1999, we started this garden. Every class in the school had a responsibility in the garden. Some classes tilled it, some classes planted, some classes watered, some classes harvested. And we developed a food security curriculum that accompanied the gardening effort that prescribed to teachers the types of things they could do at the various grade levels to infuse food security and food awareness into the school culture. And this effort really caught on and really became a defining characteristic of the school. And so by about 2003, we started having parents and teachers say to us, well, I'd like to have a garden in my backyard or in the vacant lot next to my house. And so we created something called the Shamba Organic Garden Collective. And Shamba is a Kiswahili word that means small farm. And so we created this collective and eventually had about 20 gardens throughout Detroit. And we had a team that I headed called the Groundbreakers that was part of the Shamba Collective. The Groundbreakers would go out on Saturday morning and there would be maybe 10 of us or so. And we'd go out with a tiller, rakes, shovels, and we would do the most labor intensive part of preparing people's gardens. The Shamba Collective continued to do that work from 2003 until 2006, but something occurred in 2005 that was really a watershed moment for me. And that is, as a result of the work we had been doing at the school with the gardening and the food security curriculum, I was invited by a mentor of mine, Anand Lololi, who lives in Toronto, Ontario in Canada, but is originally from Guyana, uh, I was invited by Anan to co-present with him in a workshop at the annual conference of the Community Food Security Coalition. And that particular year they were meeting in Atlanta. So the Community Food Security Coalition at that time was probably the, the preeminent organization of people around the country who were doing work that could be called either food security work or food justice work or a few people were beginning to use the term food sovereignty. And so the reason this was a watershed moment for me is because at this conference in uh, 2005, <clears throat> there was a very robust discussion happening about race and food. And the Community Food Security Coalition had contracted with a group called DR Works, which stands for Dismantling Racism Works to operate a track of workshops in the conference offerings that dealt with race. And so there were a number of sessions that I attended dealing with race. And one of the things I came out of that conference 
understanding more fully is that what I was seeing happening in Detroit was a reflection of what was happening nationally. And that is that much of the work being done that was being called food security work or food justice work or urban agriculture was being done in either black or other communities of color, but it was being led by and large by white-led nonprofit organizations who were getting grants to serve what was variously described as underserved communities, at-risk communities, or any of the other words that are kind of used to describe the disinvested, the intentionally disinvested communities in which most African Americans find ourselves. And so that's the exact same thing that was happening in Detroit at the time. The leading organizations doing this work in Detroit were all white-led nonprofits as well in a city that at that time was probably close to 85% or higher African American. That was eye-opening for me and very disturbing at the same time because, as I mentioned, from 1969 on, I had developed this very kind of sharp uh, critique of the system of white supremacy and had developed a a, a pretty sharp understanding of, of black culture and black history and was an activist in my community. Myself and others who I was in league with pushed back heavily against white people leading anything in the black community. We're not anti-white people, and you know, so we certainly uh, accept uh, allies if there are white people who want to assist us in the work that we're doing, but we push back heavily against this notion that white people or any other ethnic group should come into our communities and decide for us what should be done. We, we strongly believe that we have both the right and the responsibility to lead ourselves and that others who want to be helpful should follow the leadership of the people who live in the community. As a result of seeing kind of this national trend, which was a reflection of what I saw happening in Detroit, I began to formulate the ideas for creating an organization where black folks in Detroit who were involved in food system work, either urban agriculture or were concerned about more healthy eating, or perhaps were advocates of food co-ops, that we could create a container to bring those folks together so that we could not only participate in the food movement in a more robust way, but since we're the vast majority of the population in Detroit, that we could be in the leadership of that movement. And so I began formulating those plans, and in February of 2006, I called together a meeting of about 40 people that I knew who were, again, either gardeners or chefs or raw food advocates or food co-op advocates, and, or, and some folks who weren't involved in food system work at all, but were practitioners and advocates of black self-determination in general. And so the 40 of us came together at Black Star Community Bookstore, which was a bookstore I owned at the time, and I presented these kind of initial plans. They were adopted by the 40 people who were there, and that was the founding of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. So they, you know, I proposed a name they agreed to, I proposed a basic structure and some goals, and all of that was agreed to by the 40 people who attended the meeting that day. 
and so that was the the genesis of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. So, in in a nutshell, that's kind of how I first got involved in what we now call the food movement. Malik, I'm truly appreciative of you sharing your background, and I can tell how your unique experience and perspectives have had an influence on your leadership of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Can you tell me more about some of the things the network has been able to collectively achieve in Detroit? So one of the first things that we did is in June of 2006, myself and the then board president of our organization spoke before one of the standing committees of the Detroit City Council. And we criticized the city of Detroit for not having a comprehensive food policy. We also asked the city to give us two acres of land to start a model urban organic farm. And we asked the city for use of tractors that had been formerly used in under the Coleman Young administration. Coleman Young was Detroit's first African-American mayor and he was mayor from 1972 uh, for about 20 years. And so there was a program under Mayor Young's leadership called the Farm A Lot program. And the city made available tractors and tillers to people around the city to farm vacant lots. And so we asked, where are those tractors and how can we get access to them? So as a result of that meeting in June 2006, we were asked on the spot to develop a food policy for the city since we criticized the city for not having it. And it began a discussion with the city that ultimately led to us getting uh, two acres inside of a city-owned park, getting use of, not ownership of, two acres of a city-owned park where we started D-Town Farm. For about 18 months after this meeting with the city council, we worked on developing a policy, a food security policy for the city of Detroit. And we looked at similar policies from country, from cities around the country, uh, we looked at the specific needs in the city of Detroit, and we went through several drafts and had several other community members kind of look at it and give input. And uh, finally, in in 2008, March of 2008, we presented this draft, final draft to the Detroit City Council, and they unanimously adopted it. And so that continues to be the food security policy for the city of Detroit. Um, so, and we did that because we, we don't think the community should wait on the government to do for them or wait on the corporate sector to do for them, but that it's important that government behave in a responsible manner and the government create policy that enables residents to do things for themselves. So the writing of the food policy, the creation of the Detroit Food Policy Council was kind of one of our major efforts. The second major effort with it was this farm, D-Town Farm. And D-Town Farm continues to be our largest and most labor-intensive effort. And so last year at D-Town Farm, we grew more than 38 different fruits, vegetables, and herbs. We have an annual internship program where each year we're training a new cohort of urban farmers. We do a ton of agritourism. We have close to a thousand people who come to our farm every year for tours. And we're able to expose people through those tours to both the great potential of urban agriculture and also are able to engage them in discussions about how race impacts the food system and about the African contributions to the development of agriculture and about sustainable energy and water conservation and all kinds of topics that are related to the work that we're doing. 
So we got quite a bit going on at D-Town Farm, and it's certainly one of the premier urban farms in the country. So in addition to the policy work and D-Town Farm, we also, as I mentioned, realized early on that it was important that we engage young people in this work, and we encourage young people to become uh, agents of change in their own communities, uh, that we can't have all people in their 50s and 60s doing this work. We have to have new blood and new ideas. And so we started a youth program in 2006. One of our first programs was called the Food Warriors Youth Development Program. And we continue to operate that program uh, in two locations in the city of Detroit. We teach young people how to build and maintain raised bed gardens, how to cultivate those crops, how to harvest the crops, how to prepare the foods in healthy ways. And we teach them about food justice concepts so they can be, as I mentioned, agents of change within their own community. And then we also have a national presence, uh, both through the, the, the lectures that we do throughout the country and also through our participation in the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance and more recently in what's called the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, a national grouping of black folks doing food-related work uh, throughout the country. So once again, we understand that we are more powerful when we function as a collective as opposed to scattered, being scattered individuals. And so we're providing the vehicle to organize black people throughout the country uh, via the National Black Food and Justice Alliance. Okay, so I'm standing here talking with Shakira Tyler. We're at the Detroit Food Summit 2018, Detroit Food 2018. What workshops did you go to today? How? I went to the Community Land Trust workshop. Um, and the crowdfunding for small farmers workshop. Coming here is about sharing space, networking, um, just sharing positive vibes with folks that have similar interests as you. The big program that we're working on right now is something called the Detroit Food Commons. And so we are actually building a new building right on Detroit's main thoroughfare uh, in a neighborhood called the North End. This is a new 30,000 foot square foot building the cornerstone of which will be a cooperatively owned grocery store called the Detroit People's Food Co-op. And so currently I spend most of my time on that project. I, in fact, I spend most of my time meeting with our project manager, meeting with architects, meeting with the construction company, meeting with financers, meeting with various consultants, meeting with city officials, and trying to get this construction started. We've been working on this program since 2010 and interestingly the first step in the program was facilitated by a grant we got from the Wallace Center to do a feasibility study and so we started with the feasibility study and we've been working on this since 2010 and we're very close to actually beginning construction and so we think that we will begin construction this year and the store will be open in 2019. Wow. The network has done so much impressive community-centric work in both Detroit and around the country. I just loved hearing the strong emphasis on community organizing and convening, as well as the development of young people. It seems like the Detroit Food Commons Project will provide space for these existing and new complementary programs to really flourish. Is there a central vision for this project? So I wouldn't reduce it to a singular vision, but yes, we have some very specific ideas about what the Food Commons will do. Cornerstone of the, of the building, as I mentioned, is the Detroit People's Food Co-op. 
And so we think that cooperative development is extremely important and in fact is really the only way that people of African descent in the United States are going to be able to galvanize our collective economic power for our own collective benefit. One of the goals is to promote this idea of cooperative economics in the face of the kind of rapid, uh, almost predatory capitalism that we see playing out in Detroit and throughout the United States. We're presenting another style of development that is a grassroots-led style of development that can actually empower people in community and give them ownership. And so that's one of the things that we hope to accomplish by um, this project. The other thing that we're hoping to accomplish is to create kind of a integrated horizontal economy. So we have D-Town Farm and many other people in the city of Detroit who are running either small farms or gardens, and many of them are selling their produce. And so the Detroit People's Food Co-op will be a venue that local growers can sell to, and we will intentionally source as much as we can from local growers, provided that they can meet the, the food safety regulations that we'll have in place. We intend to source as much as we possibly can from local growers. And so this will help to stimulate the local economy and help to give, give a boost to local growers. Um, and again, the idea is to create kind of a closed loop system where we can circulate our own wealth within our own community. And so with the co-op, even though it's clearly black led and it's in a majority black neighborhood, it's not exclusively black. And so we want people of all ethnic groups to shop at the co-op and we have people of all ethnic groups who are currently member owners of the co-op. And so that's, you know, that's an interesting thing about black self-determination because in the United States, black people don't live totally in isolated pockets. And so that when we create programs and policy to primarily benefit our community, it also benefits others. So for example, the food security policy we created for the city of Detroit didn't just benefit people of African descent, it benefits all Detroiters. And so similarly with the, the Detroit Food Commons, although our focus is clearly and unapologetically on uplifting the African American community, it benefits the entire city. So we're acutely aware of that kind of dynamic that occurs uh, as, we're, as we're doing the work that we're doing. Your Detroit Food Commons project is such a great example of how one community can really leverage their resources for the betterment of their own community as well as the larger city or region that they are located in. In addition to capital resources, your project makes me think about the rich social capital that will be exchanged throughout this project's development. With this in mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your thoughts regarding mentorship. Well, first of all, I'll say that, unfortunately, we live in a society that still defines many things from a Eurocentric perspective. And so the word mentor itself actually is a Greek word. So although I use the word because it's kind of in the common lexicon, I just want to point out that it is a culturally specific word that has a particular history. And so... This idea of defining everything through the eyes of Western Europe is something that we push back against. And so many of us in the, what we term the African-centered community, though that group of black folks who heavily identify with our African heritage and have studied kind of some of the precepts upon which African societies are built, 
prefer to use the term jegna, which is a term that comes to us from Ethiopia that uh, speaks to kind of what in Western society people would call mentoring. But for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to use the word mentoring. So I think it's, it's extremely important that we have systematic ways of passing down the knowledge and the cultural memory and the life experiences of people who are more experienced to those who perhaps are less experienced. And I, I want to be careful not to create a hierarchy when we talk about mentorship, because what I found is that everybody is bringing something to the table. I can't possibly see the world in the way that a 20-year-old would see the world because they've been shaped by different forces. And so that's not to say that the way I see the world is better than the way a 20-year-old sees the world. It's different. And I certainly have something to offer that 20-year-old based on my decades of experience in the movement for freedom and you know, in the last 20 years or so in the food movement the young person also has something to offer me. They have a unique perspective that I couldn't possibly have. I'll give you a specific example. I was in a fellowship with a group called Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And there were several people, in fact, most of the people in the fellowship were considerably younger than me. And one of the things that I really learned from them is the importance of self-care. So that's kind of a hallmark of you know, young activists today. They're very uh, concerned about and acutely aware of the need for self-care. And that's not really something that was part of the, the work ethic in the generation that I come out of. In fact, our work ethic was basically you put your nose to the grindstone and you keep it there 24-7. And if you let up, somehow you're a traitor to the people. And so, um, so this is a specific example of how I was enhanced by being in spaces with these younger people who had another perspective that was shaped by the time period that they live in. So I prefer to think of you know mentorship in a, a more circular fashion, uh, where certainly the older, perhaps more knowledgeable, or not, maybe not even always older, but perhaps the person who is more knowledgeable in some specific ways and has more experience in some specific ways uh, creates a relationship with the person with less knowledge in those specific areas and perhaps less experience, but it's still an exchange that occurs and both parties grow as a result of that. Sticking with this theme of growth, how do you think the good food movement will grow in the next 25 years? One of the things we have to start with as we're discussing the American food system and the food movement and how the food movement might create a food system that is just and equitable is we have to start with the question of land and a recognition that the United States is essentially a settler colony. That you had people from Western Europe who came here and through various means, often through, through, through violence of a, on a scale that is unimaginable and through uh, treaties that were often broken uh, came and occupied all of what we now call the United States. And there were hundreds of nations of indigenous people who were living on this land who were either exterminated or who were pushed on to 
onto reservations. And so we can't just overlook the fact that because, you know, the United States has existed since 1776, that the land, the land was essentially stolen. How do we create a solution that is that represents relative justice and that breaks this almost monopoly that wealthy whites have on land ownership in the United States and distributes land in a more equitable way so that everyone has the opportunity to have access to land in order to build greater food security in their communities. And so we know with African people in this country that uh, in the period following uh, the, the ending of formal chattel slavery, that black people began to purchase land and own uh, tremendous, you know, millions of acres of land at the turn of the last century. But at this point, we own less than a tenth of what we owned, uh, you know, in 1900 or so. 1910 actually was when we were at the highest level of black land ownership. So in terms of what I would like to see for the food movement in the next 25 years is that we fundamentally shift the ownership of land in the United States because really land is the basis of power. Whoever controls land really has the ability to produce wealth as well as to produce food. And so if we want a just and equitable society, we have to rethink this idea of land ownership. In fact, I would hope even the food movement would push back against this very Eurocentric idea of private ownership of land. This is not a universally accepted idea. Uh, the Native American population didn't have this concept of individual ownership of land where you then pass that land to your descendants through perpetuity. And the same thing on the African continent. There wasn't this concept of individual ownership of land. So I would hope that the food movement would address these fundamental issues and not just address issues of how do we get organic quinoa in food co-ops in affluent communities, you know, but really address the fundamental basis of inequality in American society. From your perspective, what are some of the main inequalities within American society today? One of the unique things that I think my experience has allowed me to bring to the food movement is that the majority of my life I've been an activist in the Black Liberation Movement. And that in many ways shapes my thinking and my actions. And so I bring that into the food movement. And again, it kind of gives me a unique perspective. We really like to look at the root causes of injustice and inequity. And there's these systemic causes that we always like to point out. One is the system of capitalism, which we think is terrible for both the planet and for human beings on the planet. Uh, capitalism is an extractive system and it seems to function with the logic that suggests that we constantly need more, that every family, community, and nation has to be in competition for scarce resources. It pushes this idea of private land ownership that I talked about previously. And there's a logic of capitalism that is self-replicating. The other uh, kind of systemic cause of oppression that we always point out is the system of white supremacy. This global system that really in many ways is an outgrowth of imperialism. Uh, accompanying co uh, colonialism was this complex system of ideas that suggested to both the colonizer and the colonized that the ideas 
the worldview, the culture, the practices, the technology of people from Europe is somehow superior to people of color throughout the world. And institutions were created to reinforce these false notions. And these ideas have not disappeared from either American society or from many societies throughout the world. So if in fact we're gonna have a fair and just food system, we have to unflinchingly address this phenomenon that we call the system of white supremacy, and we really have to dismantle it. That can't just be the work of black people and other people of color. We need white people who are actively involved in recognizing the role that they play in maintaining the system of white supremacy and continuing to earn privilege as a result of this system of white supremacy. And we need some of those white people to engage in educating other white people and consciously dismantling this system that continues to give unearned privilege to people with white skin. The third thing is the system of patriarchy, the system that somehow suggests that men are more capable of leading, that women are emotional, irrational, unclean, unstable, unfit to lead. All these notions have to be dispelled. If, if humanity is to be saved and if the planet is to be saved, and I certainly hope that we still have the opportunity to do that, but if that's going to be done, we have to unleash the fierce power of the feminine energy. And that includes promoting women leadership. And it also includes kind of a recognition of the feminine energy in general. So just like the system of white supremacy uh, not only underdevelops black people and other people of color, but it underdevelops white people because it deprives white people of knowing about the rich cultural legacies of people of color. In a similar fashion, the system of patriarchy not only underdevelops women, but it underdevelops men because it disconnects us from the feminine energy within inside of us. And so we can't be whole either. And so really the goal is that we want all human beings to manifest the fullness of their humanity. And that can't happen as long as we have capitalism, white supremacy and patriarchy, these systems that systematically underdevelop human beings, both the oppressed and the oppressor, and uh, have us kind of pitted in this, uh, what seems to be an eternal battle against each other that really doesn't serve anybody well and doesn't serve the planet well. Malik, thank you for giving myself and I'm sure many others a lot to think about. Thank you so much to all the leaders and mentors involved in the Food Systems Leadership Network, a community of practice to support leaders and staff of nonprofit, community-based organizations working on food systems change. You can learn more about the Wallace Center and the Food Systems Leadership Network on our website, wallacecenter.org. This podcast was created, edited, and produced by Megan Bucknam and Hannah Mellian.